Well, we were waving the palm branches just like the people did when they were welcoming Jesus to visit the city. Welcoming into the city. But I was thinking, you know, has there ever been anybody that you've respected, that you really wanted to make a good impression on, that you invited to your home? Or that you just found out they were coming over? I mean, for the near, you know, only been married a, a year now? Not quite a year, almost a year. But maybe it was the first time the in-laws came to to visit and you tried to get everything. <laughs> you tried to get everything just perfect. Uh, maybe somebody, you know, many of us have hosted guest speakers or, or hosted missionaries. So maybe it was a missionary that was staying staying with us. Somebody coming to your house that you wanted to make an impression on. You wanted everything to be just right, didn't you? As perfect as possible. And it probably wasn't the normal way your house looked. <laughs> you know, you, you, uh, you probably cleaned areas you hadn't cleaned in a while. You took stuff and shoved it up in the cabinet or shoved it in the, in the closet. Yeah, a laundry basket. Just put it out of out of sight. That happens anytime we have anyone over, unless it's Greg. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who who knows? You you wanted to make an impression, and so you're cleaning up the mess. Okay, and and that's how we are when we want to make a good impression on somebody. We don't want them to see the mess. In our lives, do we? It's kind of like you know the, what most people post up on Facebook. They don't post the everyday yeah. mess in their lives. They post only the highlights, the very best pictures. Mm-hmm. But now imagine if the person who was coming over to visit your house was God. What would it take? For God to come down and dwell among his people. What exactly would it require of us? You know, I think the funny thing is we have a tendency to think that God would just show up and be fine walking into our mess. We usually don't consider what preparations would need to be made for God to come and dwell with us. We see a mess in the world and we complain about that, but I think a lot of times we might fail to see the mess in our own lives. We fail to see that much more than we tend to admit, I think. We don't even think of How we need to prepare for God. How to be prepared for God to come and dwell in our midst. From our perspective, I dare say, we look around and go, Oh, I'm ready. If there's God, come on and dwell. But do you realize that a holy God can't just come and walk into our mess? You know, we've been working through 
the book of Exodus. Through Exodus, uh, uh, we're up, up to Exodus 29. And this chapter uh, is the climax of chapters 25 through 28. And just to kind of remind you, in chapter 25, we saw all the instructions for the tabernacle and its furnishings. In, in chapter 26, the detailed treatment, the instructions for the coverings and the curtains. In Exodus 27, the instructions for building the altar of sacrifice in the courtyard. And the detailed instructions for the priestly garments. And the principle we saw there, if you remember, was really one of, of representation. Demonstrating that a high priest was needed to serve as a representative of God to the people and the people to God. And we're going to look at, in this chapter, I'm going to touch on the instructions for consecrating the priest so they'll be able to perform their duties. But I really want to focus on what I'm calling the big picture of this chapter. And I want to take time to, to read uh, probably a little bit of this uh, beginning uh, from, from verse 22. Because that's where we made it up to the last time. You shall also take the fat from the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and the right thigh, for it is a ram of ordination. And a loaf of bread and a cake of bread made with oil and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. You shall put all these on the palms of Aaron and on the palms of his sons and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on top of the burned offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination. He's, uh, God is telling this to Moses. You shall take the breast of the ram of ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be your portion. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved and the thigh of the priest portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination for what was Aaron's and his sons. It shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel for their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest, who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place, shall wear them seven days. You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things which, with which atonement was made at their ordination and, and consecration. But an outsider shall not eat them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh for the ordination of the bread or or of the bread remain until morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten, because it is holy. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days you shall ordain them, and every day 
you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil and a fourth of hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. All right, and here's the big picture. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the hand of Egypt that I may dwell, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So, as we've been studying through this, all of this, these chapters 25 through 29, all of this is for one purpose. And that purpose is for God to come and dwell. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And this was something that God had long ago promised. When Moses went to Pharaoh and things were going really badly, God reassured the people with this promise out of Exodus 6-7. I mean, this is at the very beginning of Exodus. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So from Exodus 6, we're up to Exodus 29 now. But think of what an incredible promise this was as they were leaving Egypt. No greater promise has ever been given. I mean, what greater promise could God make to mere mortals? than to say that he would be their God and that they would be his people. What was the tabernacle all about? It was the fulfillment of this promise. It was about the God of heaven making a place to dwell on earth. It was about God building a place where he could meet with his prophet and his people. Establishing a point of contact where he could speak to them. It was about God making his people holy to serve him. It was about God revealing himself so that he would be known as their God. It was about God completing the work of salvation that he had begun 
when he brought them out of Egypt. So the tabernacle achieves God's ultimate purpose of bringing glory to his name by saving and sanctifying his people. It's, it's in this time, it's the, it's the climax of redemption. And from Exodus chapter 6 to 29, here we, right now, we are at the, at the uh, precipice of this happening, of this promise becoming reality. Again, what greater promise could God ever make to us than that he would be our God and we would be his people? But for God to do this, it took a lot. And all through this, we've, we've learned what, what was required for God to come and dwell. I mean, because God is holy, a tabernacle needed to be built and consecrated for God to dwell. Because God is holy and people are sinners, certain people were going to be set apart and would have to be made holy in order to represent a holy God. And you might, as we've gone through this, you might ask the question, well, why didn't God just show up? Why all of this formality with the, with the ordaining of the priest and the, the garments and the, uh, the clothing that we've studied? And the, the why all of this? Why does it have to be consecrated? But I'm going to tell you, that's the wrong question to ask of why this. The right question to ask is, what does it take for a holy God to come and dwell with sinners like us? That's the question to ask. And that is the question that God answered. I, I think that we've very often... And it's due to just, I think, the influence of society. But we've got a lowered view of who God is. I mean, God is not our pal. God is not our buddy. Sorry, he's not our fishing buddy. Yeah. He's not even the man upstairs. Even though country music songs and lyrics talk about the man up, upstairs. And even... When the singers receive those rewards, they go, I thank the man upstairs. Come on. But, you know, this terminology lowers God to our level. And one of the things I think we need to realize is that left to ourselves, we're nowhere near ready for God to come and visit our home. Because that place is a mess. Our lives are a mess. And from God's vantage point, something had to be done for him to come and dwell with his people. And, you know, let me make perfectly clear. I'm not saying that you need to clean up something for God to be able to accept you. I'm not saying there's something you need to clean up. Yeah, I think nothing could be farther from the truth. If we all examined our inner lives... There's probably not enough closets to shove the stuff into that we would need to to clean up our lives. And God sees through the walls into your closets anyway. So, so what's it going to take? Well, we saw in chapter 28 that we need a high priest 
who will represent God perfectly to us and represent us perfectly to God. And we're going to kind of walk through that uh, high priest and the con- and the consecration of it. But I want to fo- keep our minds focused on the big picture that I keep bringing up and up again. So in verses, what does it take for God to come and dwell? Well, I'm going to reflect back on what we've studied last time. But in verses 1 through 9, we've, we had read where Moses escorts Aaron and his sons into the doorway of the tabernacle. And before they can enter God's holy presence, they had to be washed from head to toe. Symbolic of pure of spiritual purification. They weren't allowed to go in and handle anything holy until they had been cleansed. And then after they were washed, they were dressed in the righteous garments that we studied in chapter 28. They were anointed with oil, symbolizing God's spirit poured out on them. Uh, But the bulk of this chapter deals with sacrifice. And we see here what was required for the priest to do the work that they were to do. These priests were all sinners. I think we can see that very clearly. And there was a big gap between their outward appearance. Remember the descriptions of these beautiful garments. And even on their heads, they had the words, holy to the Lord. But there was a big gap from this outward appearance and the inward spiritual reality, the condition of their hearts. And so for that reason, something had to be done about their guilt. And the priests were not fully consecrated until sacrifices were made for their sin. Now, we're, we're reading the consecration ceremony here. And we, we've read that when the ram was sacrificed, the fat and the innards were offered to the Lord with fire. These were the best parts of the animal given back to God. The priest also made offerings with bread. And together these were waved before the Lord and then burned on the altar. And from that point on, the privilege of eating from the sacrifice would belong to Aaron and his sons. And this was God's permanent provision for the priesthood. The people brought their offerings to God and God in turn gave the priests their share. We will continue on. The, there's, there's more details about the high priest's clothing. We saw how Aaron wore special clothes for his ordination as high priest. And now we learn that these clothes aren't just for him. But they are for a whole <coughs> succession of priests. After Aaron died, his son would fill the office of high priest. And so these brand new clothes would be handed down to the next high priest. And down through the centuries, the priestly office was passed from one generation to the next. Each high priest was ordained with the ceremony described in Exodus 29. Uh, this succession of priests of priest was preserved as a living testimony to the truth of Scripture. But what is really important here is that this had to be a priest after priest after priest now God has provided an eternal priest 
for his people. The sons of Aaron only served as high priest until God sent his son to be our savior. And now Christ is our great high priest before God. There were priests who came before him, but none after. In this, in this ordination process, there was a sacred meal that was the next stage of this ordination. After the priests were washed and robed and anointed with oil and sprinkled with sacrificial, sacrificial blood, they sat down and ate a covenant meal. And this covenant meal really symbolizes how we are invited to eat at his table, communing with him in the Lord's Supper. So it ultimately took one whole week, not one day, but a whole week to ordain the priests. And on each day, a fresh bull was sacrificed on God's altar. And that sacrifice and blood even made atonement for the altar itself. Because that altar had been made with sinful human hands. And even it needed to be purified and consecrated for God by the blood. So now the altar was set apart for God. And it would be the place where he would accept sacrifices for people's sins. And there were sacrifices for the priests. Because they needed atonement. There was never any doubt uh, as far as their own righteousness was concerned, they were no better than anybody else. And so before they could offer holy service to God, atonement had to be made for their sin. Seven bulls, one each day of the week. And as the priest witnessed this sacrifice, they saw the grace of God taking away their sin. Now, if you look, uh, I just want to point this out. As you look through this passage, you look at verse 10, you look at verse 15, and then again in 19, you see a repeated action. And in Scripture, I'll tell you, if you see a repeated action, it's something important. The repeated action here in each of these verses, the priests were to lay their hands on the head of the sacrificial animal before it was slain. This was a symbolic act of transference to transfer their sin and their guilt onto the sacrificial offering who would die in their place. Substitution. As the priests lay their hands on this animal, they were identifying with that animal. They watched the bull burn on the altar and they had placed their hands on, the head, on that bull. And they realized that they were the ones who deserved to die. God was executing the death penalty that they deserved upon this substitute. The bull died in their place. And I can't remember if I've mentioned this previously, but one of the important things to see here is that this is the first time the word sin offering is used in Scripture. And we come to understand what a sin offering is. A sin offering was needed not just one day, but seven days, and then day by day by day. Sacrifices were needed to be made in order for it to be possible for God to remain and dwell with his people. 
It's crucial to see this principle of substitution here in this passage. Because when sin sacrifice is talked about in the Bible, it's always referring to a substitution that is made for the sinner who deserves to die. But then something else is substituted in the sinner's place. We also need to see the application of the blood, the blood of these animals. Blood all over the place, blood on the altar, blood applied to the priests. It's this blood that satisfied God and made atonement for their sins. Blood on their bodies as well. This symbolized that the blood of the sacrifice was really being applied head to toe. All of this, all of this demonstrates how sinful we are. And you see, one sacrifice one day wouldn't fix the problem. As I already said, the bulls, I'm going to talk about the ram, the lambs. But why all of this? God did this so that they would understand the meaning of salvation, the meaning of their salvation. And the same is true for us. We need to understand the extraordinary pains that God went to to provide for our salvation. We needed a sacrifice for our sin, and God provided one through the death of Christ on the cross. We sang about it this morning. By the blood of his own son, God has set us apart to serve. Talking about the blood, I know, might make people squeamish. Mm -mm. You know, I think many people would prefer that God accept them on the basis of something else than the blood of Christ. You know, there's a... uh, in, in my view, an infamous uh, Anglican bishop, uh, John Shelby Spong, who denies the need for atonement. He goes around complaining that Christians are always talking about the blood that Jesus shed. And he says this. He says, I, listen, to, this is this man's quote. I would choose to loathe rather than worship a deity who required the sacrifice of his son. But you know what? This is exactly what it takes to make someone holy for the service of God. The blood of a perfect sacrifice. No, he's not. (laughs) You see... You see, God desires to dwell with his people. But this, this is what it's going to take. A sin offering, a pleasing aroma, a wave offering. You know, by the time that last lamb or the last ram was slaughtered, there was blood everywhere. You know, think about what Hebrews says. It declares that the law 
requires that everything be cleansed by what? By the blood. God was satisfied and their sins were atoned for by the blood of the sacrificial substitute. And get this, I mean, this is the core understanding of Christianity. In understanding the death of Christ and understanding the sin sacrifice, a substitutionary atonement. God can't come into your mess as a holy God until your mess has been cleaned up. And you can't do it. It can only be cleaned up by the substitutionary atonement that God provides. And God's saying, God said, God said to them, I love you. I saved you. I brought you out of Egypt. I intend to dwell with you. But it's going to take a great sacrifice and a lot of blood to make this possible. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this text from thousands of years ago? How do we understand it? Well, one of the best ways to understand Old Testament is what does the New Testament do with that text? Because God is still the same holy God. And I've got to tell you, just like those Israelites, we are unrighteous sinners. And if God is going to come and dwell with us, something has to be done about the mess in our lives. And I'm probably greatly I mean calling it a mess is a massive understatement <laughs> but as we've been walking through the section of Exodus I've, I've already talked about how one thing after another points to Christ the tabernacle pointed to Christ coming to dwell with us uh, the word becoming flesh and dwelt literally means tabernacled among us the golden lampstand symbolized Jesus as the light of the world. The bread symbolized him as the bread of life. Even the curtains that separated the holy place from the holy of holies symbolized how his bodily death would open up the way for God. And you see this, this, this principle of atonement, of substitutionary atonement, seen in the sacrifices and in the blood of the animals, points to the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. And so maybe uh, if, we, if, we, if you can turn over to Hebrews, uh, chapter 7, we'll kind of wrap up with that. You know, Jesus is the ultimate sin offering that atones for our sins. And it's Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 26. Jesus resolves the sin problem that we have. And here's what the writer of Hebrews says. Uh, verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Now contrast this to the Old Testament high priest. What kind of a priest is Jesus? Well, this tells us he is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's the kind of high priest we need. 
not one who has to offer up offer up uh, a sacrifice for himself. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sin and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he was offered up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And now look at, look at a little bit later, chapter 9. Verse, beginning at verse 11. Chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, the tent not made of hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Now what he's saying here is that if God was satisfied for this for a temporary time, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that purify our conscience from dead works for what purpose to serve the living God so get this Jesus died as our perfect substitute and his blood was offered up as a perfect atonement what does that accomplish it's not something temporary but it is an eternal redemption what do you say to that Hallelujah and amen. And, and when we lay our hands on Christ by faith, he becomes our substitute having died in our place. By his blood, our sins are atoned for. And we are forever cleansed. Hallelujah. We are sinners. And our life is a mess before God. And God sent his son to deal with our sin in a far greater way than those sacrifices in the Old Testament could ever do. I mean, think about what 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.21 declares about Jesus. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Our sin was transferred to him so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sins, so that our sins might be atoned for and we might be robed in Christ's righteousness. Jesus stood in our place as a substitute. He bore the wrath of the curse of God for us. And in his sacrificial uh, death, he did what that ongoing sacri blood sacrifice could never accomplish. He made perfect atonement for the indwelling sin that I could never get rid of on my own. Back to 
chapter Hebrews chapter 9 verse 25 nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world but as it is he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself right there Jesus put away sin by his sacrifice. You need to be amazed and impressed with the extraordinary pains that God took to get everything ready so that he could come and dwell. Before he came, everything was made holy. God made the tent holy. He made the furniture holy. He revealed his divine character in each piece. He made the priests holy. He put a label on their head, symbolizing they were holy to the Lord. And only then was it possible for God to come and dwell among them. And he be their God. And they be his people. Only then would they be able to know that he was their Lord. And the same is true for you and me. We come to Christ. We're washed, we're cleansed in His righteousness, anointed by His Spirit. We need to be clean, cleansed by His blood. And only then will we truly be ready for God to come and dwell. And how does Christ come and dwell? Think about it. After He cleans up your mess, after He sanctifies you, after He applies this substitutionary atonement to your life man you are com you're completely forgiven but you know what he does something far greater than just coming to your house he sets up his abode in you he wants to do so something far greater far better than dwelling in a tent he's come to dwell in us God has come to dwell in us forever so that we would know him as the God who saved us from our sins through the death and resurrection of Christ. That's why the New Testament speaks of believers as being a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's how much God loves us. God loves us so much, so much that what was lost in the garden he wanted to restore it in an even greater fashion. And he's done this. All those who come to Christ, God sets up and dwells within you, makes his abode in you. Isn't it amazing that the living God has made a way to come and live with sinful people? Not an attempt made with hands like the tabernacle. But he lives right inside you and me. By the inward presence of the Holy Spirit, he's come to dwell in us. But of course, this doesn't happen until God first makes you holy. You know, each one of us in one way or another are messed up. 
We need God to do a work in all of us. And he has in Christ. But think about this. Have you ever thought it's once you're cleansed, can we really say that there are no more sacrifices? It's a trick question. No. There is. Daily. Well, we're called to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. That's what we do as Christians. Romans, in Romans 12, you'll see that Paul borrows from Exodus 29 in the language that he's using. Because he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's how we treat this passage out of Exodus 29. That's what we do as Christians. We're able to give the whole of ourselves to God as a sacrifice, which is our spiritual worship. God didn't come to dwell in us that we would live our lives for ourselves. He saved us for his glory to display his glory in our lives. And so when we come and when we gather in corporate worship, I mean, one of the things that we are reminding or should be reminding ourselves is that we are living sacrifices. And the greatest worship you can do is when you go and live your life as a child of the king in this corrupt world. We offer ourselves to God, the whole of ourselves, in gratitude to God as living sacrifices. He owns all of us. From the blood placed on the earlobe to the blood placed on the toe. Covered in blood. We are covered. And we should give all of ourselves to him. In spiritual worship. How can we not respond to all that God has done? We we're called as believers. We're called now that he dwells within us. We're called to offer the whole of ourselves up as a living sacrifice so that we could serve God with our whole lives. Let's pray. Father, help us to listen to your word, Lord, to, to, to walk in it, to walk in your ways. Help us to respond to the gratitude that we should feel in our hearts over what you've done. The, the sacrifice of your son. We want to be your God and want 
We want you to be our God and us to be your people. Thank you for what you teach us, Lord, in your word and, and how you've illustrated it. Thank you for what Christ accomplished through his death and resurrection. May we offer ourselves up to you. May we be living sacrifices and display your glory. Amen.